Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the March 9th, 2023 policy edition of Carbon Removal Newsroom. Today, we have with us two of the most incisive people in carbon removal. First off, Will Burns, co-executive director of the Institute for Carbon Removal Law and Policy at American University. Hi, Will. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. Did it snow in Chicago? I saw some snowy forecasts. Winter is coming again. (laughs) shouldn't be coming. And Holly Jean Buck, Assistant Professor of Environment and Sustainability at the University at Buffalo. Hi, Holly. Hello. Is it cold in Buffalo too? I don't know because I'm actually at Scripps uh, in San Diego looking at the ocean as we speak. Nice. I used to live right there. It's beautiful, but you do look bundled up like it might be cold in San Diego. And finally, it's Radhika Mulgafkar, head and supply of head of supply and methodology at Nori. So let's jump in. Um, the Canadian company Planetary is currently seeking regulatory approval to release magnesium hydroxide into the ocean off the coast of Cornwall, England. The same company also just announced what they claim is the world's first ocean-based carbon removal protocol. Another Ocean CDR firm, Running Tide, announced last week that they are partnering with a global consulting giant, Deloitte, to evaluate the quality of their carbon credits. The company grows and sinks seaweeds to sequester carbon. And then last month, the research team at MIT received news coverage for their ocean carbon capture technique, which they say is a breakthrough that is more effective than direct air capture. So they're It's a groundswell of announcements indicating real and widespread interest in researching techniques that pull carbon dioxide from the ocean. But how is this research into these approaches to be governed and what important regulatory issues have yet to be resolved um, that will have an impact on the climate? So let's jump in because Will, you are one of the foremost experts in CDR research and have recently also published your own um, law review article about it. When we were talking about this a year ago, um, we were we talked about this a year ago. Sorry, and what has changed in the time in that time, and have there been any de- meaningful developments in how ocean CDR is regulated? Yeah, I think there's been a, a number of of developments both at the international level and the domestic level. So I'll just very briefly touch on those. Uh, one of them is uh, in the context of the London Convention and the London Protocol. Uh, it, as everybody probably remembers, in the last decade, the London Convention uh, passed a resolution to uh, regulate uh, ocean iron fertilization in response to ocean iron fertilization research uh, activities. And then the London Protocol uh, under the convention 
uh, amended uh, its language to uh, provide for regulating quote unquote marine geoengineering activities. Uh, well, late last year, uh, the parties adopted a statement uh, that acknowledged that marine geoengineering was taking place, uh, but that it uh, had limited information and we didn't know a lot about the effectiveness and potential risks. And so what they called on was for a priority evaluation of a, of a series of marine geoengineering approaches, two of which fall under the realm of CDR, that's uh, ocean alkalization enhancement, and then uh, uh, macroalgae cultivation, as well as, as ocean upwelling. And uh, they've indicated that they're going to uh, uh, conduct a legal and technical analysis of these approaches, and they encourage uh, all the parties to subject any proposals for research in this context to uh, the risk assessment framework that was adopted under the London uh, Protocol. And that risk assessment looks uh, is the same risk assessment that the London Convention had adopted in the context of ocean iron fertilization. Uh, second international development uh, is uh, is is uh, under uh, under unclosed the, the law of the sea convention uh, the biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction treaty uh, was uh, the text was agreed to this week and uh, I, there's a number of those provisions that may be pertinent to future uh, research or deployment of uh, ocean based approaches uh, in the open ocean uh, this includes the uh, uh, the uh, ability to establish marine protected areas in the open ocean uh, that may, in some cases, restrict where uh, ocean CDR approaches can be deployed and at what scale and what kinds, uh, or it may privilege them in some of those areas if it's deemed to be important to address issues such as uh, uh, acidification, for example. And then it established uh, far more specific rules than we had under the Law of the Sea Convention for environmental impact assessment. And uh, at the very least, uh, it, it's probably gonna ensure that there's much more of a flow through of, of public information about these approaches in the future. And then at the national level, I think there's two things that, that have been important. One is EPA is, has emphasized a number of times that ocean uh, carbon dioxide removal uh, uh, research could be regulated under under the research provisions of the Marine Protection Research and Sanctuaries Act, and the the rumor is they're developing uh, guidance documents in this context. And then uh, the uh, uh, the Army Corps uh, under the Clean Water Act, Section 404, and the State of New York. Uh, uh, recently uh, issued permits to Project Vesta, the uh, uh, the enhanced mineral weathering, coastal mineral weathering company, for uh, placing olivine on, on on a beach in Southampton, New York, for for ocean nourishment. And so uh, we st we're starting to see specific provisions of of U.S. law, uh, Section 404 of the Clean Water Act, and maybe now the uh, in the future the Marine Protection Research and Sanctuaries Act. Um, applied to specific projects. And so we're starting to see what kind of requirements both the state what states may impose and what the 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 federal government may impose. Well, thank you, Will, for that very interesting and in-depth overview. Certainly, actually, a lot has changed, but you don't really appreciate it when you're in the middle of it. Uh, so I appreciate the overview, like I said. Um, Holly, I'm curious, from your perspective, you've been away from the show for about a year, but you were still working in the CDR space. Um, 
What have you noticed in terms of the management or shifts in how Ocean CDR is researched, talked about, funded, deployed? Not sure if it's been a shift just so much as an overall increase. I definitely think we've seen a lot more serious discussion about MRV, our favorite uh, acronym on this show that's supposed to be acronym-free, monitoring, reporting, and verification. Um, there's been a few social science papers published, one by Rebecca Loomis and colleagues, another by Sarah Cooley and colleagues that, you know, kind of have an overarching call for more attention to the social dimensions, but we haven't really seen like a big shift or a big change in my point of view. What were those, those papers where there's any, did they touch upon people's feelings towards ocean-based MRV or ocean-based, sorry, CDR, another acronym, or is what, were, what were they, uh, what were they looking at, Holly? One has uh, 15 key components of an ocean CDR research code of conduct. The other is kind of another review paper that lays out the key concerns. So we're not at the point yet where actual new empirical studies are being funded to look at this, which I think is a shame. Like people are still doing kind of desk-based research, which is what they can do unless there's like new funding that has you going out to the field, interacting with people. So, Will, I know you do some desk research yourself um, and you focus kind of on the governance of marine CDR research. So what has caught your fancy lately? What have you been studying and what types of ocean CDR techniques do you focus on? Well, the, the, I've been looking at a couple of things recently. I just uh, published a, a law review article in the main law review looking at the marine uh, research provisions of the Law of the Sea Convention and how they may be applied, right? Uh, uh, some of the marine research to date, quite frankly, has just been done under the radar. Uh, but at some point, uh, it's it's likely that uh, sp specific provisions of the Law of the Sea Convention, uh, which are quite extensive in the context of, of marine scientific research, um, are going to be applied by states. And so what I did in that piece was try to look at what uh, the right, the respective rights of coastal states and other states that might want to conduct ocean-based CDR would be, right? And uh, it's a spectrum under the Law of the Sea Convention. In the, in the territorial seas, essentially, a coastal state has an absolute right to determine if, if another state, including its private entities, can engage in, in ocean-based uh, CDR within those coastal waters. So they can absolutely veto it if they want. Uh, but uh, when you move out beyond 12 miles to the exclusive economic zone, so 200 miles, uh, it, there's far less discretion. Uh, in, indeed, the Law of the Sea Convention says that generally, if it's done for peaceful purposes and to potentially provide scientific benefits to mankind as a whole, uh, you're supposed to permit that research as, as a coastal state. Uh, and so I think that's interesting as uh, uh, some of these startup companies start to uh, negotiate uh, with with coastal states in terms of these uh, research experiments. Uh, but one thing that I found that was notable is there's a couple of exceptions that could really circumscribe uh, that discretion. Uh, one is uh, that the law of the Sea Convention says that if uh, if it would involve exploration or exploitation of natural resources, uh, it can be uh, it could be stopped. Um, and so I think 
a lot of these things, uh, such as ocean iron fertilization, for example, or seaweed uh, uh, harvesting might fall into that rubric. And also, uh, if it could uh, uh, introduce uh, harmful substances. Uh, and then the question would be, most of the time of the law of the sea is, is could you litigate whether that's true or not as a, as a, as a country? And under most of the provisions of the Law of the Sea Convention, there's a right to, to go to a tribunal like the Tribunal of the Law of the Sea or the World Court or arbitration to determine those issues. But under the Law of the Sea Convention, these marine scientific research provisions that allow you to preclude the research on these grounds uh, can't be contested, right? So uh, uh, states still have, even in their EEZs, quite a bit of discretion as to whether to allow ocean-based CDR, in my opinion. And then finally, in the EZs, there's the most freedom uh, to, to conduct that research, but it's still subject to provisions on uh, minimizing pollution and, and creating harm in terms of uh, human health or, or, re or, uh, or uh, living resources. And it may be that most of these uh, marine experiments are small enough that they don't really rise to that threshold, uh, but they may get to a point uh, incrementally where they are large enough and then states are going to have to and companies are going to have to look at how to ensure uh, that they minimize those those potential risks so i think this is going to be um, a looming issue at, as we start to move from mesocosm and and desk research to uh, to large-scale field research well yeah we'll put your uh, law review article in the show notes but for those who haven't read it at the very least, it's a great overview of all the different ocean CDR techniques that are currently being thought about at the uh, for part of the law review article. So, highly recommend taking a look at it. So, Holly, we kind of I kind of briefly touched on this earlier, but you know, most of the research into ocean CDR is being done by academic or nonprofit or even startups who want to sell these carbon credits eventually. So, how do we get the public? uh engaged have a chance to talk about what they want wills describing sort of state level mechanisms that may allow some public involvement but what about like native tribes indigenous people all the folks that are you know often most impacted by coastal and ocean um impacts well if you're gonna think about co-producing research then you usually need to do research on the questions that are most important to those people. And it probably won't be ocean CDR because they have a lot of other pressing needs to think about. So, I mean, this is just a challenge, like how do we build institutions where those relationships are already functioning well? Um, aside from that, I think that we can think about two levels. We can think about engagement on the project scale and engagement on the program level. And so if you're thinking about engaging with the project, definitely these startups could be doing that already if they have sites where they're doing field trials. I mean, they should be talking to people there. But if you just focus your engagement on the project scale, you'll miss some of the broader concerns about what sorts of things we should be investing in as a society. So I think that what we also need to focus on is, you know, engagement with the net zero or other sorts of climate strategy more broadly. And that's a, a huge basic effort that will touch on CDR, but we'll touch on a whole bunch of other things as well. And I really wish that uh, government would step up and voters would press government to fund that sort of engagement, because without that, people 
may not be on board with this post-carbon transition more generally. So Will, obviously, as you kind of described, the governments that governance of the oceans takes place in different jurisdictions with many types of legal regimes. So as we move this forward and as we try to get the research and potentially ocean CDR off the ground, um, which organizations and bodies do you think are most important to work with to ensure the governments is done well and also coordinated in a way that is equally beneficial to all countries? Mm -hmm. Well, I think coordination is going to be a difficult question, right? There, there's a lot of writing in academia about a, a fancy term called polycentric governance, right? And uh, it, it simply means that a, in a lot of cases, the same issue is governed by a number of different treaty regimes, right? Uh, with often the same parties, but uh, sometimes at, at cross purposes, sometimes fighting for turf, sometimes with, uh, you know, very different interests in terms of their focus. Um, I think there's a number of regimes that are likely to be involved. Uh, we already touched on uh, one that's that's actively engaged in this, which is the London Convention and the London Protocol, right? They, they regulate dumping or placement of materials into the ocean, and right? So a lot of these approaches, maybe with the exception of ocean upwelling and downwelling, uh, would involve placement of, of material into the ocean. And so... Uh, almost any of these approaches, as as this new resolution from London acknowledges, are are likely to be of interest to them, and they'll they'll have a role to, uh, to play. Uh, I think the the Convention on Biological Diversity, which also passed a resolution during the same time as the London Convention's resolution was passed, uh, will continue to play a role given their interest in protecting uh, marine resources uh, from. Uh, uh, from any threats that might be posed by uh, by these approaches. And uh, the CBD continues to publish studies on, uh, on what they define broadly as marine geoengineering, encompassing both solar radiation management and carbon dioxide removal approaches. But I think there's other regimes that'll jump in the fray in the future. I've already mentioned one, that's the Law of the Sea Convention and, and, and the Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdiction Treaty. Uh, I think that uh, uh, marine resources regimes will become involved at some point. Uh, the United Nations Fish Stocks Agreement, uh, which regulates highly migratory and uh, uh, and straddling fish stocks, has provisions to protect fisheries from other uh, uh, environmental stressors. And to the extent that ocean iron fertilization approaches or ocean alkalinity uh, or uh, seaweed harvesting might impact uh, those kinds of fisheries, uh, that regime might be involved. Um, other regional fisheries regimes uh, might be involved. For example, if you were to deploy ocean iron fertilization in the Southern Ocean, which is where it would predominantly probably occur, uh, you have the Convention for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources, right? And if we're worried about changing the assemblage of phytoplankton in the area or nutrient robbing, right? Uh, uh, that treaty might uh, might be involved. And then finally, I think the climate regime, right? At some point uh, uh, is, is going to be involved. There's already discussion of that, uh, both in terms of potentially uh, uh, using uh, uh, carbon credits or CDR uh, approaches uh, to meet nationally determined contributions. And then there's also language in the treaty that talks about ensuring that response measures comport with, you know, protection of the environment, protection of human rights, and so forth. 
and that uh, might be invoked as a way to to scrutinize uh, uh, these kind of approaches in the ocean as well as the terrestrial approaches. All right, final question on this topic is for you, Holly. Um, so last year you published a research paper on what social scientists say motivate farmers to attempt soil carbon resequestration on their land. Can you briefly tell us what you found? And then also, do you see any analogs to what might motivate people who work on or near the ocean to support CDR? Yeah, so this was um, a review in the journal of biogeochemistry about the studies that have been done so far on farmer adoption of practices that sequester carbon. And generally, carbon credits have not been the main motivator. People are motivated by other sorts of benefits, um, like you know, water retention in soils, or maybe they're a part of a community or movement like regenerative agriculture, that they have, there's kind of a social meaning to that. Maybe they're trying to pass on good land to their children. So I think we need to look more at these non-monetary motivations and how that might transfer to marine CDR. There's a focus there on stewardship that's probably relevant. And I think that Russ George and the Haida Salmon Restoration Corporation, when they did their ocean fertilization event a decade ago, tapped into that, like their tagline was not, you know, X tons of carbon. It was 40 million salmon can't be wrong. And y'all should look that up on YouTube because there's a music video about it. But that was like, you know, the message, right? It, it wasn't about the, the, the climate math. Um, so we can think more about that. Yeah, I mean, not that you need me to tell you this, but certainly your paper echoes my experience at Nori with the farmers that carbon removal credits are not the motivating factor. There's something much much deeper emotionally having them switch to these practices. All right, well, talking about switching, we will switch topics right now. Last week, um, James Temple wrote in MIT Technology Review about an experiment in the UK last year where researchers tested a balloon that released sulfur dioxide into the upper atmosphere. The study, which was leaked to the reporter, has generated significant controversy and resulted in calls for more standards in the geoengineering research realm. So I will ask you both, just what was your reaction to this article? Holly, I'll start with you and then I'll move over to Will. I mean, for me, this really starts to blur the line between experiment and performance. <laughs> so an event like, you know, the Russ George Titus Salmon, <laughs> the one I just mentioned was more definitely in performance territory, although they, they had some things about it that they did want to make it into an experiment. It just didn't quite get there. Something like the Make Sunsets balloon event a few months ago, definitely performance territory. This one, a bit harder to say. Um, and I think it calls into questions like how the media ecosystem works and the pressures scientists face to have a sort of performance component to their work um, that we could discuss for a long time. Will, what did you think? Yeah. Well, since these involved balloons, our, our government probably shot them down. So we, we should probably be looking for the sulfur dioxide right now. Um, well, you know, full full disclosure, I've, I'm a signatory as, in a movement to try to ban SRM research full stop, right? So I, I, I generally don't even believe we should be developing standards because I can't conceive of from a governance standpoint or an 
intergenerational equity standpoint, why uh, society should should consider SRM, right? But I think if you really want to stop it, uh, this, this is a poster child to do it, right? Uh, kind of thumbing your nose uh, at... Uh, at uh, regulatory regimes and saying we're going to do it, uh, and e even Gernot Wagner at at Columbia said, "Well, this is just a response to frustration because we're not able to do this, right?" And I I think that's a poor message. Um, I think uh, it, 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 essentially it's saying, "Well, if society decides that that they don't want to do it, too bad. Then we're just going to have to go out and do this unilaterally, right?" And I just think that. Uh, the approach that that Harvard has taken in this in this in the spice experiment is 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 the proper one, right? They have a, a independent uh, a research committee that's uh, engaging with with potential stakeholders, uh, and uh, and and they're they're correctly saying that when stakeholders provide input, it's not just input on how they feel about sprinkling a little sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere, but how they'd feel about what the implications of of ultimately deploying this at full scale are right and that's that's something that society should get to determine uh and and i think these kind of 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 exploits uh just totally eviscerate any notions of social license to operate in it and and it's going to beget a backlash uh and uh, as well it should so Holly, uh, the researcher behind this study, Andrew Lockley, has said that he is attempting to get the results of the experiment published and isn't sure who leaked the news early. I mean, does do you does the fact that this came to light because of a leak have any bearing on this story? And what do you make of that detail? That's kind of strange in scientific research, it seems like leaking study, potential studies. I mean, it just shows, I guess, how how controversial this is and how aware people are about the performance aspect. Um, I think I have a different view than Will on the merits of research. Well, I know I do, because I think that this illustrates the, the fact that we need, you know, a comprehensive publicly funded research program that's international, that meets the standards that a lot of researchers have been talking about as in terms of transparency, no for-profit endeavors and so forth. I think we need that to hold the space because otherwise we have these ridiculous things that come up that, you know, don't help anything. So to you both, um, what do you think this study and kind of controversy imply for future debates around ocean CDR? Because in some ways I see them as similar things, deeply emotional things that people feel a lot of anxiety around. Um, so do you see any connection to and or uh, guidance in how we should be approaching our ocean CDR studies? Holly, I'll start with you and Will, I'll end with you. I mean, I, I do see there's some relationships here in terms of the, the main concern I think people have with both of these is a distraction from what we need to be doing in terms of phasing out fossil fuels. And unless we get serious about that, like really serious, clearly are on a path, we're going to have problems with research in both these areas. I wish I had something brighter to say than that. <laughs> Will, anything you want to add? Yeah. 
I mean, I think in a broad sense, some of the trepidation is similar because both of them really involve large scale interventions in the global commons, right? In a, in a way that maybe a direct air capture plant doesn't feel the same way, right? And and perceptions that ocean ecosystems correctly are, are, are extremely delicate, right? As is true with the atmosphere. I like to think that the marine CDR community, for the most part, is doing a, a more uh, responsible job than the, you know, the Satan balloon or or making sunset, right? Uh, I mean, I think there's a an effort to uh, engage communities, uh, provide information, and and obtain social license to operate. It'll be interesting to see in places like Cornwall, for example, where where planetary is involved, if the government uh, says you can do it, but there's clear public resistance. Uh, do, does planetary take no for an answer, right? Do, does social license to operate constitute kabuki theater on the part of, of uh, companies or or is actually going to be taken to heart? Uh, and and then the broader issue is, is whether that should be true. Does the public have a veto over these projects, or does government ultimately decide what's best for the people in this context? Uh, it may be those two converge, but it's it's not clear yet uh, in 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 Cornwall, and I th I don't think it's clear in a lot of other places also. Well, you just you just asked the little questions there, just the little questions. <laughs> I think personally, from what I've seen, it doesn't seem like the social license to operate and government. Are coming together in the CDR space right now, uh, particularly with some of the some of the people in the equity and environmental justice moments movements. So, fingers crossed that they do. Finally, uh, I'm going to end with some good news, and it doesn't actually have to do with oceans. It has to do with the world's first on-site, fully integrated direct air capture to concrete commercial production facility. It'll be using technology from Carbon Built and Air Capture, both carbon removal uh, startup carbon removal companies. Um, but what I found most exciting was it was also part of a government, the local government of Flagstaff, Arizona, funding the procurement, which I thought made this a whole different type of partnership that we haven't yet seen in the CDR space. Really shows a type of demand signal that we need to get these low emission, non-emission um, cement, steel type products into the pipeline. And um, I was just really excited about the news and the ability to create that kind of partnership. With that, I will say thank you to my two hosts today, Holly and Will. I appreciate your time. And we will be back in your feed, I think, in two weeks for our, um, our business program. Till then, thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal.